0: In 1932, the mayor of New York City hopped on a transatlantic ocean liner with his mistress and fled the United States of America to avoid prosecution on multiple corruption charges. This was an extraordinary turn of events. Just six years earlier, James J. Walker was elected mayor on a huge popular mandate. He was a jazz age mayor for a jazz age city. The historian Robert Carroll called him the... Prince Charming of politics, said he had all the vivacity of a song and dance man. He got his start actually writing music for Tin Pan Alley, New York's local songwriting industry. The press loved him. He was charming, and he was outgoing, and he was always seen at Yankees games, or at Broadway shows, or at speakeasies in the middle of Prohibition. They gave him nicknames. The aforementioned Prince Charming of Politics came from his ability to cajole and convince others to see things his way. The nickname Beau James came from his ability to wine and dine many beautiful young women in the chorus of Broadway shows while his wife was out of town, and his wife was out of town quite a lot. He got Gentleman Jimmy as a nickname for his charm and how he dressed and how he walked and how he acted. And, of course, the nickname, The Nightmare, because he seemingly only worked after the sun went down, rubbing elbows at a number of illicit drinking locations and dealing with some of the seedier elements of New York society. He was corrupt, publicly corrupt, openly corrupt. Everyone knew he took bribes. Everyone knew he had his hand in vice and he had dealings with the mob and that he was publicly, notoriously violating the Volstead Act which put teeth to the Prohibition Amendment added to the United States Constitution not that long before. But who cared? Everyone was violating the Volstead Act. Everyone was taking bribes. Everyone was corrupt. And Jimmy Walker, he was a friend of the people. He kept the subway fares under a nickel, as he promised in his original campaign, and the people loved him for it. He was one of them taking it to the snotty goo-goos, those good government activists up on the Upper East and Upper West sides that had the laughably childlike insistence that the government should be clean and work for the people. Nerds, dorks, dweebs, Jimmy Walker was what everybody was and what everybody wanted to be simultaneously. He was loved. But as the 1920s wore on, things started to get worse. The corruption got less fun to watch. It went from being fun drinking out to murders in the streets. The Depression hit, which suddenly took all of the money and glamour out of crime. Arnold Rothstein, who helped to run New York City's criminal underground, was murdered in New York City while James Walker was out at a nightclub with yet another one of his mistresses, while Mayor Walker was on vacation in California, and he liked to vacation a lot. He was on vacation about 173 days his first year in office alone, but while he was out in California, Vivian Gordon, the most notorious madam in New York City who ran its largest both prostitution and blackmail rings, was also murdered. This murder... Led the governor of New York, a gentleman by the name of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that name might be important later, is going to appoint a former judge, Samuel Seabury, to start investigating specifically Vivian Gordon's murder. And this is how everything's going to start to rapidly unwind. You see, the vice industry in New York was so intertwined that you couldn't just investigate Vivian Gordon's murder to investigate that. You'd have to investigate how she was able to make her money off of prostitution, which means you had to investigate the cops who were on her payroll, which means you had to look into how those police officers were arresting individuals who were not actually prostitutes for prostitution and blackmailing them into paying enormous fines in order to be set free. As part of these raids, Seabury's commission is going to arrest one police sergeant with an $8,000 a year job where they found a tin box containing over $400,000. This led to investigations into how these police officers were able to stay on the force, which led to investigations of the judicial and political systems, which of course led to Mayor Walker, good old Gentleman Jimmy. Gentleman Jimmy defended himself with charm and with a breezy carelessness that was starting to wear thin on the people of new york even though the people still loved him they were getting sick and tired of him the archbishop of new york will denounce him from the steps of saint patrick's cathedral claiming that it's jimmy walker's adultery was specifically the reason the depression happened it was a curse from god as the seabury commission closed in Governor Roosevelt insisted that they had to get rid of Walker soon because, well, he was planning on running for president, he couldn't have this embarrassment in the Democratic Party still running New York City. And so Jimmy Walker decided perhaps it was time for him to resign the presidency and go to another continent where the extradition rules were a little bit looser than perhaps they should be. And so Jimmy Walker, champion of the people, the most corrupt mayor of New York City in the 20th century fled town to avoid an investigation into his ties to Russia. I mean, corruption. Corruption. I was talking about corruption. Ah, damn it, you figured it out by now. This is the show. Oh, that genial gentleman in the silk hat. Gray spats, striped pants. Why that? I gotta be him. A gentleman, Jimmy. Welcome to Republican in Exile, a half-hour exercise in self-torture where I, your jazz-age prude of a host, attempts to survive another week of bullshit that slides out of Washington like a prize-winning heifer who was just given a smoothie made entirely out of chipotle and laxatives. I'm Matthew Hedge, and this week we're going over a litany of sinful behavior and mind-numbing events that have left me oh-so-frustrated and caused me to drink heavily. Speaking of which, I'm having a martini this week. On a quick side note, a martini is made out of gin. If you're making it with vodka, you're doing it wrong. Stop. The song you are valiantly attempting to ignore right now is Gentleman Jimmy from the musical Fiorello, a song about the mayor who valiantly fought for what New Yorkers really wanted, cheap transportation, and illegal hooch. I have to say, it's not a bad campaign slogan. We could learn something from this man. Hmm. If this is your first time listening, I was once a loyal Republican, but I have these things called common decency and good sense, which prevented me from remaining in the party after Donald Trump got elected, so now I'm a reluctant Democrat trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Every week I go over this week's horrors, I follow that up with the outrage of the week, give you a little bit of good news, and then give you a way to look smart. The song's coming to an end, and that means we're moving right in to this week's horrors. Hooray! Well, let's dive right in, shall we? General Kelly, formerly the Secretary of Homeland Security, has taken over as Chief of Staff to the President of the United States and has immediately started cleaning house. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the mooch is toast. Ten days as the communications director, the last person that lasted that short a period of time in that position uh, had to leave it because it was discovered that as a child, he was a member of the Hitler Youth, and that guy lasted longer than Scaramucci did. Yeah, the Mooch had a pretty terrible 10 days. The man lost his business, which he had to sell in order to join the administration. He lost his wife, who divorced him, because he joined the administration. He missed the birth of his first and only child because of this administration, and the president dumped him like a hot potato. Uh, It's almost impressive, Trump is getting much better at completely destroying the lives of those who devote themselves to him. He's really impressive. I think that the next person he has in that role may last, you know, a couple of hours before they have a nervous breakdown and run out into the street screaming. As opening acts for a new member of administration go, that was a pretty dramatic one. General Kelly got rid of the mooch, someone that everyone in this country seemingly agreed with was unhinged but kelly's appointment is concerning to me for a couple of reasons number one he has no real political experience the guy's a military man which means he's going to know how to organize a staff and do paperwork and that's about it he doesn't know much about the legislative process he doesn't have allies in congress he's not really dedicated to the president's agenda as a matter of fact cnn revealed that kelly actually considered resigning In protest over President Trump firing James Comey, the former FBI director which led to all of these investigations, Comey told him not to quit. Why did General Kelly take this job? It seems like something he does not want at all. But he is a military man. Military men feel duty. They feel responsibility to serve their country. That could have been a major motivating fact for him in taking this position. It's also possible he might agree with elements of Trump's worldview. He was a very enthusiastic Secretary of Homeland Security during the early days of Trump's immigration ban. Richard Nixon's last Chief of Staff was also a military man, General Alexander Haig, largely because, while well, Nixon couldn't find a politician that was willing to take the post, could that be a part of it? Could Trump not have actually been able to find someone crazy enough to take that job? That's possible, too. Trump loves generals, though. He really does. something about the borrowed glamour and respect that a uniform lends to him, and of course, their devotion to duty allows Trump to be the only ego in the room, at least publicly. Regardless, Kelly's next move was to give cover to the National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster to fire Ezra Cohen-Watnick, a favorite of the Bannonite wing of the Trump White House, from the National Security Council. This comes on the heel of the firing of two other members of the Bannonite Nationalist wing, of the White House from the National Security Council, Derek Harvey, and Rich Higgins. All three of those figures were brought on by former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who is under, well, quite a bit of scrutiny right now in the Russia probe and was fired for convincing the Vice President to lie on national television for him. Remember, there are three factions left in the White House. There are the Bannonite Nationalists. There are the Axis of Adults, those military figures in Rex Tillerson, and there are the New Yorkers. This week, saw fighting between those factions really heat up. The Bannonite nationalists may have lost supporters in the national security apparatus, but they did get something they deeply wanted, a proposal from the Congress to restrict legal immigration in the United States of America. You see, the nationalists don't just dislike illegal immigration. They dislike legal immigration as well, because it's not the legal issues that bother them. It's the immigrants. Senior White House policy advisor and answer to the question, what would a thumb look like if it could wear a suit and had a receding hairline? Stephen Miller decided to go before the podium and explain to the American people how terrible immigration was and how it was ruining America. When challenged by reporter from the New York Times, Glenn Thrush, to back up his clearly false claims that over half of immigrant households are on welfare and that immigrants drive down wages and create unemployment and income inequality, Miller yelled at him, insisting that the numbers are there somewhere and it's not his job to prove it to you and it's all common sense anyway and la 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 la, I can't hear you and then proceeded to get into an argument with CNN's Jim Acosta about the poem on the base of the Statue of Liberty by Emma Lazarus. You know, the famous one that reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. See, Stephen Miller likes to point out that that poem was not originally on the Statue of Liberty, and it wasn't. Kudos, Stephen. Good job, you. You win, I guess? Because, yeah. Alright, this law is enormous and sweeping, and has very little chance of actually passing, so... Let's move on, shall we? At a rally in West Virginia Thursday night, that state's Democratic governor, Jim Justice, announced that he was joining the Republican Party, making an enormous switch. After all, Jim Justice had been a figure in Democratic circles in West Virginia for, what's that, less than a year. He was a Republican until six months before the election. Okay, well, this isn't really a big piece of news, but Donald Trump sure seemed to think it was. And West Virginia is one of those states that actually likes Donald Trump, possibly because only about 40% of their adult population can read beyond an eighth grade level. Still, this announcement wasn't managed very well from a communications standpoint. The West Virginia Republican Party was still putting out press releases attacking Governor Justice as of 2 p.m., the day he became a Republican. All of Jim Justice's top aides are Democrats. Most of Of them weren't told about his switchover until the rally was going on, and Jim Justice was attacking the Republican healthcare plan as recently as yesterday. Awkward. At that rally in West Virginia, Donald Trump congratulated Jim Justice for joining the team, by which I assume he means those individuals who have no idea what they're doing, and of course led the crowd in a rousing chant of lock her up because Hillary Clinton should really be investigated for those 30,000 missing emails. Oh boy. The fallout from Donald Trump's Boy Scout speech continues. I want you to think real hard about the sentence I just said. I'm going to say it one more time just for you to get the full impact. The fallout continues from Donald Trump's Boy Scout speech last week. The president. After his rambling political speech in which he threatened to fire the Secretary of Health and Human Services in front of 40,000 children, claimed to reporters that the Boy Scouts loved his speech, that they called him up afterwards and they told him that it was the best speech they'd ever heard, one of the best of all time they loved it. The Boy Scouts immediately put out a statement saying they did no such thing. The White House, quote, "had no immediate response to the Boy Scouts denial unquote. "That's right. the Boy Scouts of America have accused the President of the United States of lying. Sarah Huckabee- Sanders, Later said the president was confused. He didn't mean to say the Boy Scouts' leadership called him after the speech to tell him how great it was. He meant to say that people immediately after the speech came up to him and said that he gave a good speech, which I believe. I don't believe anything the president said, but I believe that probably someone at that event said, Hey, you did a good job. Maybe Rick Perry, or the vice president. You know, someone stupid. It was revealed this week the president essentially dictated his son's original lying statement about his meeting With the Russians to collect negative information about Hillary Clinton, that's what we like to call organizing a cover-up. It tends to get you well. It rhymes with schmim schmeeched. In the aftermath of that revelation, Congress passed a serious set of sanctions against the Russians for their interference in the 2016 election. It passed with overwhelming veto-proof margins. Donald Trump signed that bill, realizing he had no chance of actually stopping it, but included a signing statement, an official statement from the president about the law that he just signed, claiming that the law itself was unconstitutional. This is infuriating. The veto power exists because presidents are supposed to veto laws they think are unconstitutional. You don't sign something that you think is unconstitutional. That's you saying that you're a with laws that are unconstitutional passing. It's like the head of PETA eating a hamburger while talking about how meat is murder. Your involvement is tacit approval. Donald Trump isn't even good at being terrible. Well, I say by the old clock on the wall, it's time for us to take a time out to get some word from our sponsors. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I I made two so I could make the clink noise. There's one. There's the other. God, I love gin. Well, that brings us to this week's outrage. This week's outrage is the idea of implicit consequences. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Let's say you fired three people from the National Security Council. You fired your chief of staff, you fired your press secretary, you fire a whole bunch of people that have access to information about you. You might imagine that some of that information is going to leak out. Speaking of which... President Trump's transcripts of conversations he had with the Mexican President and the Australian Prime Minister leaked this week. Shock of all shocks. These transcripts are bad, and I'm going to mean that in multiple ways. Let's start with the surface level of bad. They make the president look like a child, even more so than normal. For instance, in the president's transcripts with the Australian prime minister, he doesn't seem to actually fully understand what they're talking about. He keeps using the wrong terminology. Australia has a policy where it does not allow in refugees who arrive by boat because they don't want to add to the human trafficking problem that they currently have. If you allowed anyone who came in on a boat to come in, you'd have all of these criminal syndicates setting up large boatloads of people to Australia. President Obama agreed to take some of these refugees that the Australians had decided it should get refugee status, but they couldn't take because of their pre-existing policy against boat-based refugees. Donald Trump didn't understand this. He implied that Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia, was, quote, discriminating against boats, unquote. Donald Trump instead said, oh, you're using this boat thing as an excuse to discriminate against people from certain regions, and that the Australians were much more vicious than he was. Donald Trump, in essence, believed that this was a backdoor for Australia to create what he would put into effect a few weeks later, his Muslim ban. Here's the thing. This proves something that I've said before. Donald Trump cannot imagine a world in which everyone is not him. To Trump, Trump is the most honest man in the world. He's the best person. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump is going to say, and I quote, I'm the world's greatest person that does not want to let people into the country. In that line, Trump acknowledges that not taking refugees is probably a bad thing. But of all the people who want to do that bad thing, Trump is obviously the best of them. The call with the president of Mexico didn't go much better. He threatened tariffs. He used the word hombres a bunch. He called New Hampshire a drug-infested den and implied that he won the state in the electoral college when he didn't. He then capped it off by complaining that the Mexican president was talking to the press about how Mexico wasn't going to pay for a wall and how Mexico needed to stop doing that. Mexico was perfectly fine not paying for the wall. Trump even said it was the least important thing, and that's a direct quote, least important thing. But the president of Mexico needed to stop talking about it to the press or trump was essentially going to cut off ties with mexico trump couldn't take the pr hit that early in his presidency and begged them to help him out by simply not talking about the issue publicly of course by beg i mean threatened to destroy their economy if they didn't stop you know little differences. But I have to say, Trump's childishness in these calls isn't the reason that this is the outrage of the week. The leak is actually the outrage of the week. I know, I'm going to sound like a Trump defender for a little while here. These calls should never have been made public. The President of the United States needs to be able to talk to the leaders of other nations in a confidential manner in order to secure America's foreign policy goals. I'm afraid this is setting a terrible precedent. It would be one thing if the call between Trump And Putin leaked, and and Trump complained to the Australian Prime Minister that Putin was the only person that was nice to him on the phone. If that call leaked... Well, that's something that's in America's best interest. But everybody knew Trump was an idiot. Everybody knew Trump lied when he said those calls went well. Uh, We didn't need that information publicly. This is bad. It is bad that the national security apparatus, that these people being fired, are getting away with lots of information and are then releasing it indiscriminately to the press. This does pose, potentially, a national security threat to the United States of America. God only knows what else those people took with them. On an almost identical note, the military has essentially decided they are going to simply ignore the President's tweets on transgender people in the military. This is also not a great sign. I oppose Donald Trump's transgender ban. The fact that every single general in the military has essentially said that they won't enforce it is not great. When the President of the United States makes an order to the military, you have to hope that they are going to enforce it. Now the Trump administration has made nothing official about this transgender ban, but the quick rebuttal from the Defense Department is also concerning. This is not great. Also, to this point, the Secret Service has vacated Trump Tower because they got into an argument over their rent with the Trump Organization. That one's not so much bad as it is just funny. (laughs) Uh, Hey, let's jump into the good news. This week has quite a bit of good news, so let's uh, go over it. Number one, Jeff Flake, Republican senator from Arizona, released an op-ed in which he attacked his own party for not going after Donald Trump. I'm going to read you some key quotes from this op-ed. To carry on in the spring of 2017 as if what was happening was anything approaching normalcy required a determined suspension of critical faculties and tremendous powers of denial. I've been sympathetic to this impulse to denial as one doesn't want to believe that the government of the United States has been made dysfunctional at the highest levels, especially by the actions of one's own party. This is This is beautiful thank you so much. (laughs) I I began to think you were all stupid rather than just political cowards, but no, Jeff Flake, oh beautiful Jeff Flake with your crazy libertarian ideas and your vacations on islands, uh, that deserves an explanation. Jeff Flake is well known for taking survivor man vacations to deserted islands where he has to survive by hunting his own food, building his own shelter, and generally making his own fun. He's done this not only by himself, but with his two younger sons in the past. He's a bit of an odd duck. Highly libertarian, fairly right-wing on a lot of issues. In general, I'm not fond of libertarianism. Libertarians are just anarchists who happen to have jobs, like how communists are unemployed or unemployable socialists but Jeff Flake seems fairly principled as a human being. The op-ed is titled, My Party is in Denial About Donald Trump, goes after Trump for essentially everything, denying Obama's legitimacy, the way he stirred up hatred in America, a whole laundry list of horrors that essentially would be very welcome on this program. You should go and check it out. I posted it on the Facebook group and on uh, our Twitter page. This is a big deal. Jeff Flake is a solid conservative. Jeff Flake also essentially has nothing to lose. He's got an 18% approval rating in Arizona right now. Still, baby steps. I'm calling this progress. I like it. The United States Senate decided it would go unanimously into pro forma sessions, meaning that they would never go on recess. This would prevent Donald Trump from appointing anyone on a recess appointment to any job in the government. The fact this was unanimous is a pretty good sign that the Senate is tired of Donald Trump's crap. Also, that they think he might fire Sessions over the break and try and appoint, I don't know, Rudy Giuliani. God help us, Chris Christie, to his job. The Senate has also introduced a bipartisan bill designed to protect the Mueller investigation from Donald Trump's 3 a.m. rages and tweet storms. Introduced by two senators that sound like they escaped from a Marvel comic, Tom Tillis and Chris Coons, this bill would limit the president's ability to remove Mueller from office. It would say that his decision to remove the special counsel would be subject to judicial review, and that it mandated that only the Attorney General and an Attorney General that was confirmed by the Senate could remove that special counsel. Meaning that if Trump fired Sessions, that new person, if he was put into office by, I don't know, a recess appointment, wouldn't actually be able to fire the special counsel. This law's constitutionality is, uh, questionable. Then again, so is the Tenure of Office Act, and we used that to impeach a president once. If you'd like to know more about this, go to your local library, or just wait a week and I'll talk about it. Finally, and this is the big good news, that Mueller investigation, it has impaneled a grand jury. Meaning, that there are going to be criminal charges against someone coming out of it. Which is just, oh, uh, beautiful it's like a like a like a baby in a a Botticelli painting just wonderful I personally think it would be amusing if President Trump hopped an ocean liner with a mistress at the end of all of this but that's because I like historic symmetry what do I know That segues nicely into our How to Look Smart this week. There's a grand jury. This means that indictments and subpoenas are going to be handed down. And that means what it does for all criminal conspiracies. People singing like a bird. I want you to look out for the signs of individuals starting to crack. This White House is chaotic. Wildly chaotic. It's chaotic evil at best. I would look for signs that General Flynn and Sebastian Gorka and Paul Manafort and Carter Page are starting to take deals in return for singing about what they know. Additionally, it should be remembered that the special counsel's investigation can probably wander far afield. If you start hearing more about Trump's potential financial crimes in the future, well, that's because he might be indicted on them. And that's all for this week. Special thanks to my producer, Jonathan, and to Acast. Remember, Acast, for all your podcasting needs. Acast, making good stories great. You know what else makes things great? Martinis. <laughs> mm. Nothing better. If you would like to contact us, we are podcast at gmail rie podcast on twitter republican in exile on facebook send us your comments your questions your concerns your queries i will respond to your absolute lunacy with absolute lunacy of my own are you feeling jipped? that this episode's only going to turn out to be like 27 minutes long? Well, do I have good news for you. Next week is the impeachment special. I'm on vacation, and heck, so is the president, for 17 days at a golf club in New Jersey. He's not doing his job, probably good for America. I shouldn't complain too much. In any case, next week's the impeachment special, so prepare yourselves. In two weeks, we'll pick up with a normal episode that will somehow try to cram news from two weeks into a single episode. Send help or gin. This has been Matthew Hedge saying uh, next week try not to die.